Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for November 24th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we learn about the development of the first Roundup-ready forage soybean from Eagle Seed, and we talk to Sam Cecil, Arkansas's representative at the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We also talk turkey with Poultry Federation head Marvin Childers. First, researchers at Eagle Seed in Poinsett County have developed the first Roundup-ready forage soybean, which growers can use to create high-quality food plots for deer and cattle. Keith Sutton talked to Eagle Seed sales director Brad Doyle about the new product. Welcome to AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. Today, my guest is Brad Doyle with Eagle Seed in Wiener, Arkansas. Welcome to AgCast, Brad. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. Yes, you know, I uh, I was digging around on the internet looking for interesting stories, and I found one on Eagle Seeds website. And uh, we want to uh, tell folks about some of the research y'all are doing over there. Uh, but to start, how about you tell folks a little about Eagle Seed and what y'all do there? Yeah, so. Uh... It is a family business uh, started in 1975 by my mother and father-in-law, and uh, he was a soybean breeder. Uh, actually, he's a plant breeder on many crops. He worked in rice and, and wheat and oats as well, but uh, ran the business, um, Got a, had a Ph.D. in plant breeding. Uh, many of you know my wife, Joyce. Uh, she's been on the... Arkansas Women's uh, Committee before, and uh, she got her Ph.D. In, in plant breeding also from the University of Arkansas, following in her father's footsteps. So uh, here we also uh, work with brother-in-law's son and my mother-in-law. So family it really, business. truly is a family business all the way around. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the family started uh, from... Uh, my wife's grandfather migrating down from Iowa in the early 1900s. So he was a soybean uh, rice farmer uh, from the beginning, and the business evolved out of the uh, really just the local farmers needing better access to genetics in both rice and soybeans. Well, I know you've been very uh, active yourself in the I guess we could call it the soybean community. I know uh, you served at least three terms as the president of the Arkansas Soybean Association. You've been on the governing committee of the American Soybean Association. Uh, you, you've been really immersed in the soybean world too, right? Uh, yes, that is true, Keith. I serve as the secretary for the American Soybean Association currently. Um you know, it's all about a passion for advocating for our industry, uh, being active with Farm Bureau locally. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the county president for Poinsett. Uh, we get to interact with uh, local community, uh, promoting ag. The, uh, the American Soybean Association actually allows me to interact internationally. So I, I travel abroad quite a bit promoting U.S.-grown soybeans, uh, we have high quality, 
high-yielding varieties uh, that we develop here in the United States, and uh, there are customers all over the world that, that demand U.S.-grown soybeans. So it's a wonderful experience to, to meet their needs. Well, and what prompted me to ask you to be on this podcast, I was uh, looking at some of the research that you all have done at Eagle Seed, and you've got some really interesting new soybean products that are uh, either now available or soon to be available for folks, and we wanted to talk a little bit about those. And uh, one of them that grabbed my attention right off the bat, because this is a world first, y'all developed the first Roundup-ready climbing soybean. And, and I had not heard of climbing soybeans until I read that, so maybe you can explain that a little bit, folks, and tell them what those are and, and how they're used. So uh, today's soybean that we drive up and down the highway and look at would be uh, the Glycine Max uh, soybean, fairly short, uh, tall, up, upright plant, usually 14 to 18 nodes on it, you know, easy to harvest. Its its main uh, goal in life is to produce beans, and, uh, and that's about it, uh, it, with as little plant material as possible. Well... You may or may not know this, Keith, but uh, the original wild soybeans of Mongolia were a viney type. I did and, not. Yes, so they are not today's soybeans. We've actually, um, we have a, a genetic library here at Eagle Seeds, so we we have thousands of, of different varieties, exotics, that we breed, have in our breeding program. And uh, Joyce had the idea a few years back to, uh, cross the viney types, the wild types, to the modern-day uh, glyphosate-tolerant or Roundup-tolerant soybean. So that's um, a lot of people don't know it goes into a breeding of soybean, but it takes several years, at least seven generations, to get it pure enough uh, to start growing it as, as a seed. And uh, the viney type, yes, it's very unique. Uh, it does not stand on its own. So it tends to travel, you know, along the ground. We've got some vines that are eight to ten feet long. Wow! Uh, quite a bit different than your, you know, yeah. normal thirty-six or forty-inch tall soybeans. So, uh, but there's a lot more to it than just the viney part. With so, that, yes, sir. Go ahead. So. Uh, I know we recently talked with Doug Hartz in Stuttgart about how his grandfather was instrumental in bringing soybeans to the state. And one of the things in our conversation that came up was that originally those soybeans they were planting were used mostly uh, for hay uh, or as a forage, I guess you could say. Uh, so we're kind of coming full circle here where Y'all are producing a crop that is really good forage, right? So, yeah. So the old old soybean varieties, a lot of them tended to shatter. So as soon as they got mature, the pods opened up and they spilled their seed onto the ground. So there was very uh-huh. little uh, capturing of the actual grain. Uh, and through the Soybean Association and other organizations, uh, like the United Soybean Board, we, you know, figured out 
that, hey, there's a bean there that actually has value. So initially it came over, uh, farmers started playing with it, and you are correct, it was an excellent, excellent forage crop uh, grown as hay uh, or even put up as silage or baleage. And, but that was bred out of it for the most part. Right. I we, know yes. the, the soybeans we see today, I, I grew up working on the soybean farm. Uh, I didn't live there, but I remember back then the soybeans, uh, the regular, I would call them the soybeans, were much taller and bushier, and it seems like we bred that out, so they're producing more pods and more beans. Is that right? That is correct. So think about high-yielding soybeans today uh, need to be easy to harvest. If we're running right. a lot more plant matter through the harvester, it's going to take more horsepower. Uh, it may take longer to harvest, you know, an acre. So we, we want an easy-to-harvest plant uh, with a maximum amount of, of pods and therefore seed on there. So you're exactly right. Uh, there's no reason to have a big, big, tall uh, viney type if we're just solely looking for uh, the grain that's in the pod. But that's not what you're looking for in these new varieties, right? You're that is correct. So we have, uh, you know, prim primarily most of the forages, uh, either grass or alfalfa or corn, you know, and corn silage, those are those are your most common types, but we have uh, farmers who wanted uh, or were interested in forage types. So we we started breeding uh, bigger bigger plants in general, uh, more nodes on the plants, larger leaf, and uh, and they stayed greener longer. So all of these uh, traits together, uh, you can triple, even quadruple the amount of biomass or plant matter that you have per acre uh, to either feed cattle or, in, in a lot of cases, we feed wildlife with them. So we have a, a right. customer base for, for food plots. So a lot of our deer hunters would probably be very interested in, in learning about these beans. Yes, sir. So you can grow them. Uh, for, uh, you know, with a grain drill, you can plant with a planter, but you can simply harvest them with, a, you know, normal hay equipment, uh, let right. them dry for a day or two, put them up as, as dry bales, uh, you can roll them, uh, or you can, you know, put them up wet uh, and, and make, make baleage or silage out of them. And, and cows love them. Cows really love soybean hay, so no problem there. <laughs> And what are some of the other positive traits of, of these soybeans? So protein, uh, that's one of the, the attributes we look for. Yeah. Uh, you know, when cattlemen are trying to figure out what ration to feed their cattle, they, they look at the protein levels. So high protein is one of the, one of the qualities uh, that we, we look for in the forage types. Uh, it, it needs to be a high-yielding. From a tonnage uh, standpoint, or you know, or they could just buy hay or some other forage crop cheaper. Um, staying green and on the leaf uh, at a you know when uh, when it's time to harvest, so that's an important 
uh, and then also uh, easy to grow. Um, you know, not not adding a lot of cost on specifically nitrogen. Uh, that's a big benefit, not to have to add nitrogen on it. You know, right. hay rotation. That's that's a plus. Are these available already, Brad? Uh, yes, Keith. So we do offer our um, our viney type in with uh, two other forage types that can get six to almost seven feet tall. So, wow! Yeah, they, and they and they stand <laughs> on their own. They they actually climb amongst the other uh, two tall soybeans. But we do have customers who like to plant them in with rounder pretty corn, and, and and actually have them climb like that. Okay. So if I plant me a food plot uh, on my property with these beans, uh, they're going to be so tall. If deer get them, I might not even see them out there, right? <laughs> that, is, that is true. We do have co- some customers who have to bush hog uh, shooting lanes in their plot. Ah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> one one <laughs> thing that also separates these forage types, Keith, from our ag types is the uh, the staying green about months or even six weeks longer. Okay. So if you're, if you're feeding wildlife, you want them to stay on your property uh, as long as possible. Right. Most of our, most of our high-yielding, you know, ag-type soybeans nowadays are early maturing. So they're dropping leaves in September, usually, you know, early October harvest. So we've got right. beans that will stay green and growing actively up and, you know, take a couple of frosts to kill them. All right. So that's just a, a really uh, interesting new thing that's, that y'all have done. And I would imagine, too, this is just one of the the things that y'all have been working on. Is there Are there other things that you're working on that you can tell us about? So there are some, some new and exciting things that will be coming out in 2021 that I really can't talk about, but... Uh, stay tuned, right? Uh, right, right. But, <laughs> you know, Joyce works uh, heavily on food-grade soybeans, so a variety uh, of to make tofu, uh, yeah. to make natto. We've, here at Eagle Seed, we've shipped soybeans to Japan, uh, China, South Korea, South America. So food-grade is another specialty class of soybeans, and there's many, many attributes that we measure uh, for those, you know, in addition to just our our normal commodity soybean that gets crushed and primarily used for livestock feed. Well, we will ask everybody, y'all stay tuned because uh, as uh, those products come out, and we can tell you about them. I'm sure Brad would like to come back and do that. Uh, we appreciate you taking time right before the holiday to share with us today, Brad. Let's tell everybody if they want to get more information, uh, where would they want to go? So thanks, Keith. Uh, EagleSeed.com is our website. We have a, a ton of information on there, a lot of detail about the research we do here. Uh, we've got dealers throughout the U.S., but uh, we're, we're here, based here in Poinsett County uh, since 1975, and uh we love to talk, uh, see what, uh, what what ideas you have for improving the, the forage nutrition on your farm. 
Well, we thank you for being here today, Brad, and we wish you and uh, yours a happy holiday season coming up. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing about some of those new food-grade soybeans and uh, how we might get our hands on those to eat at home someday. Next, Ken Moore talks with Marvin Childers, president of the Poultry Federation, about the importance of turkey growing in Arkansas. Moore caught up with Childers following Governor Asa Hutchinson's traditional Thanksgiving Turkey Week proclamation on the steps of the state capitol. I'm Ken Moore on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. We've just had the annual Turkey Week proclamation here at the state capitol, and I am speaking with Mr. Marvin Childers. Mr. Childers is president of the Poultry Federation in Arkansas, and uh, Arkansas continues to be one of the leading states in the nation in turkey production each year. And Mr. Childers, that's something to celebrate and uh, recognize. So tell us again just how important the turkey industry is. Uh, Overall, we know we're one of the leading poultry production states in the country, but how important is turkey production? Sure. I'm glad to be here with you. You know, Arkansas ranks third in the nation in, in turkey production, and what better time to recognize the Arkansas farmers and the corporate uh, the corporations who process these birds. We raise over 30 million turkeys a year here in Arkansas and provide over 576 million pounds of protein annually. Believe it or not, that's 4 million birds more than we produced in 2019. And if you look at that on an annual basis, that averages 577,000 turkeys per week. Um, Again, I mentioned that uh, Arkansas grows over 11% of all turkeys in the United States. Um, Our turkey production adds about $4.6 billion uh, to the Arkansas economy and provides over 19,000 jobs. You know, one other tidbit of information that I find that's always amazing is that every Butterball branded whole turkey sold in the United States is grown in Arkansas. So it's just this time of year is just uh, as the governor mentioned it's a time to be thankful uh, to give back and as you heard me mention Cargill over the last five years has donated over a million pounds of protein uh, to the Arkansas Food Bank and we're proud of uh, Butterball and Cargill being good corporate citizen, providing lots of jobs, and as I mentioned, the uh, state and local and federal taxes is over $300 million. million. Very important, very critical to our state economy. Agriculture, as we all know, is our state's largest industry uh, because of all the different commodities we are able to produce. Arkansas is one of the most diverse ag production states in the whole country, Mr. Childers, and of course, poultry is the leading driver of all of that. Yeah, and, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I mean, we're number two in the nation in broiler production. We're number uh, eight in the nation in egg production. But as I mentioned from the podium, we could not do this without our row crop farmers. As I mentioned, just in the turkey industry alone, uh, the turkeys raised in Arkansas eat 15 million bushels of soybeans and almost 7 million bushels of Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, 15 million bushels of corn each year and almost 7 million bushels of uh, soybeans. So without our row crop farmers, again, a time to be thankful for them and for the the collaboration that we have in the ag industry. Uh, Arkansas is very blessed. 
Now, despite the pandemic, we had some, as we know, earlier this year, uh, some uh, situations within the uh, supply chain. Some poultry plants had to be shut down across the country because of the outbreak of the virus. But we're back up and running now. And, you know, I was in the supermarket just last week, like many are, getting ready for the holiday. And I don't see a shortage of poultry products, you know, whether it be chicken or turkey. We have an abundance, and we're very fortunate. So talk about how efficient we are with our production and why we don't have to worry about there being a shortage of product. Well, I mean, as you know, when the pandemic started, uh, we did run some short. Part of that was because of food service product. Uh, became more plentiful, but that product can't be sold in the grocery stores because of packaging requirements. But we are blessed. Uh, uh, the companies have spent millions of dollars. I read yesterday uh, the poultry industry alone has spent over a billion dollars just on additional costs due to the pandemic. But what you're seeing is you're seeing those companies they know and they have proven that the safety of their employees is number one. Right. So th that's where that billion dollars has gone is expense to try to make certain that employees are safe and that we continue to produce a supply of, of poultry products across the nation. And they're doing a great job of it. They are certainly we have the most efficient processing system in the whole world. And then because we have such an abundance, and you talked about the donations to the food bank, very benevolent on the part of our uh, integrators doing that. So many benevolent organizations, our churches, so many are going to be feeding the hungry because we've had so many that have lost their jobs this year due to the pandemic. We've got such a large supply. They're not going to hurt or want for a turkey dinner this Thanksgiving. No, I don't think so. And you know, I, I read from the Farm Bureau uh, post this week, uh, um, the average cost of a t uh, Thanksgiving meal has actually gone down $2.21. And what great partners that we have with uh, Farm Bureau to provide that information, to get it out to the public. And then, as you mentioned, what a time to be able to give back. How thankful we are, and this is just an opportunity for us to give back. Certainly it is, and we love to do it. Mr. Childers, thank you so much for sharing with us the excellent, exciting news about our poultry and turkey industry here in Arkansas, and happy Thanksgiving to you. Same to you. Thanks. Been speaking with Marvin Childers on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Now Greg Patterson talks to Pope County Cattleman Sam Cecil, who represents Arkansas in the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Cecil discusses the pandemic disruptions of 2020 and looks ahead to 2021. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we've got Sam Cecil as our guest, and Sam is a cattle producer, and he is also a member of the Arkansas Beef Council, Area 2 VP for the Arkansas Cattlemen's Association, and he's on the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Sam, welcome to Arkansas AgCast. Uh, good morning, Greg. Good to talk well, with you this morning. <laughs> and, and, and boy, beef, and, and just talking about all kinds of stuff. But first and foremost, kind of tell our listeners, uh, you're a cattleman. Uh, where's your farm, and, and what are you raising? Well, we have a, a small farm. Uh, we're located in Polk County, uh, just northeast of uh, Russellville area. Uh, 
don't own a lot of land, but we lease uh, a little bit, and we're running a uh, cow-calf operation, just commercial mm-hmm. cattle. Uh, it is uh, one of those that we've been doing the cattle now for uh, over 30 years, and I'm still learning something new every day. So it's uh, it's one of those areas that uh, if you're walking and breathing, uh, you have the ability to learn something. Well, that's so, obviously a good attitude to take. And, and so how many head do you run? Is it? Uh, we're only running right now about 80 head of uh, uh, mamas, mm-hmm. of course, uh, not counting bulls and calves. But uh, that's enough that we've got them spread out into smaller groups and uh, gives us plenty to focus on anyway. I bet it does for sure. And, and one of the focuses – one of the reasons why I called you is you are uh, a part of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, which is a non-governmental group, but um, has a lot of influence on, on uh, where meat goes and, and the exports and everything. And I think you were in a bunch of, you told me a couple of weeks ago when we were setting this up, you were going to be in Zoom meetings for a whole week, learning a whole lot more about what's going to happen in the near future. So, so, what is the the U.S. Uh, Meat Export Federation, and what do they do? Well, I got involved with the U.S. Meat Export Federation through the uh, Arkansas Beef Council, mm-hmm. where I'm the uh, Beef Council's delegate to the uh, Meat Export Federation. Sure, and, and you mentioned earlier the, uh, uh, in, in one of our conversations the Beef Council position, that's that's one where you, you get appointed by the governor to, correct? Yes, it is. It is. It's an honor to be able to uh, serve on there and actually represent uh, beef producers from across the state. So uh, I hold it in pretty high regard. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The Meat Export Federation, though, was uh, developed many years ago to try to improve uh, the United States' ability to get into foreign markets. Uh, When you look at the uh, population of the world uh, compared to the population of the United States, you know, we're only about five to six percent of the world's population. So there's a lot of mouths to feed outside of our country. Uh, Currently, you know, we're looking at uh, on the beef production side, uh, this year's Production was probably around 13% uh, went to exports. And on the mm-hmm. pork side, probably uh, it was close to 30% right. of the total production went to exports. So we do export a large, large amount of meat, uh, both pork uh, and beef. Also, there's a lot of poultry exported also, but I don't feel right. qualified to speak on the poultry <laughs> side. Uh, but the Meat Export Federation, though, uh, even though they cannot set uh, policy, that's all done by our government. Uh, right. They are actually the ones that you can say educate and grease the skids, if you want to call it that. Absolutely. Because they're providing uh, knowledge, expertise, uh demonstrations, uh, all those things to people that are in the know 
and can create the demand uh, for our products overseas. Uh, currently, I mean, you know, if you look at where we're shipping to overseas, uh, as far as uh, beef and beef variety meat exports, uh, our top uh, countries are Japan, mm-hmm. Korea, Korea, Mexico and Canada, mm-hmm. uh, Hong Kong and China, and Taiwan. Wow, uh, those are the those are the largest. On the the pork side, I mean, it's similar. Uh, Hong Kong and China are the largest. Right. With of course, this year has been one of those where you look at what's going into China and you're thinking, my gosh, you know, that's that's a huge amount. Uh, but uh, China's another story also, and I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. But uh, okay. when you get past Hong Kong and China as the largest uh, impo- importer of our uh, pork, uh, then you look at Mexico, uh, Japan, Canada, and Korea. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a diverse mix of places that we're sending to. And those are the only the top countries. I mean, there's a, it's going all around the globe, though. Sure, sure. So so basically in the top countries, we've got our neighbors, our border neighbors of Mexico and Canada, and then you've got a big Asian market, it seems, as well um, that's, that's going on. And, and you mentioned 2020. I mean, 2020 has been a crazy year for many reasons, and uh, obviously the COVID-19, the pandemic, supply chain issues, and all kinds of stuff going on meat packing issues and, and, and things like that. So what's 2020 been like for the, uh, the cattlemen? <laughs> oh, I mean, what's it been like for you, Sam? Well, it really didn't affect me quite as much. I was fortunate enough that I did not sell any calves during the uh, precipitous drop that we had early in the year after sure. COVID struck. So it didn't affect me quite as bad, but uh, you know, you hear the uh, all the stories on the television and in the print, and mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. looking at things and going, "Wow, <laughs> you know, we've survived bad things before, but uh, uh, this is going to be one of those years we'll remember for a while, anyway." We will, the, uh, sure. The biggest thing I think as far as the country and globally was uh, we pretty much shut down uh, hotels, restaurants, uh, institutional uh, demands, Mm -hmm. and that was where probably half of your uh, uh, market that was actually designed to go to uh, to feed the tourism industry. And right. as you know, the tourism industry, <laughs> they went down to almost nothing because global travel just sort of stopped. Right, right. So a, a lot of these things just shut down. And in this country, if you remember back, oh, I don't remember which month it was now. It was uh, in the spring anyway, early spring mm-hmm, probably, mm-hmm. when uh, it got you couldn't find all the cuts that you were normally looking for on the grocery store shelf. Right. And it wasn't that we didn't have those uh, available. 
it was that a lot of them were packaged to go to the institutions and the uh, food service industry. So so what you're saying is in, in some of the research I've done in previous stories, restaurants could have made up 40% of, of what people were buying as far as just food in general. They were going out and going yes. to restaurants. And, yes. and the packaging of, of meat that would go to a restaurant is so totally different than the packaging of meat that you're going to pick up in the meat section of a grocery store. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, there was, uh, there was quite a shift in the demand for certain products and the packaging of those products had to shift also. So, I mean, that was, that was what created part of the, uh, what looked like a shortage of, uh, product in the stores was, we didn't have a lack of meat. We had a lack of uh, properly packaged meat that could be sold through the grocery right. store at retail. Right. So has that, that, has that bump been overcome somewhat in reconfiguring all the packaging, or, or are we still kind of in a, a scenario where eh, it's getting better, but it's not there yet? Well, from what I've seen and from what I've heard, uh, I think that the industry has adjusted to more meet more of the retail uh, supply demand. So I'm thinking that, uh, you know, they're going to continue to be flexible as far as how they uh, package items and how they can shift things around. But they're always looking to do the most they can with the entire carcass. Right, and, right. And some of those things, uh, this country does not have a great uh, uh, palate for. <laughs> so uh, a lot of those variety meats go overseas. Where yeah, they look at it say, as a value added. What you'd be doing then is finding markets for those places, those cuts. That is exactly correct. It's what they're doing is looking for niche markets, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm whether it be for like beef tongue, beef liver, uh, pork liver, uh, anything that's not as common in this country. Right, right. There are uses for it outside of this country that uh, people pay good cash for. So we're looking at it from a standpoint of getting the most out of the carcass that you can get, whether it be – yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say that that is the essence of of finding new export markets and things like that, and and getting dollar return for the people who are at the, the cattlemen level, you know, on the ground. Uh, that is correct. Right now, and and this year is a little bit off. I mean, uh, beef sales or beef exports this year are uh, actually down. Oh, probably around uh, 8% or so uh, from past year. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, they try to track and keep track of is the uh, uh, beef export value average per head. Yeah. And this year, uh, January through September, I mean, it is down. It's down to around $295 per head. 
which just uh, last year, a year before, uh, we were looking at around the 320, 330 range. So, wow, yeah. It it does make a difference as far as the, the markets go and what the world economy is doing, uh, especially more so on the beef side than it does on the pork. Uh, the pork uh, value is around, uh, oh, $58, $59 per head. Right. Okay. The pork carcasses are, you know, you can't compare beef to pork in that sense. So, sure, you're talking much smaller carcass and much quick, much more quickly produced. So, uh, but the export market does contribute considerably to the uh, uh, amount of meat that we produce and the value that is added to the meat. Well, how about how about as we move, um, and, and I want to get back. You, you mentioned uh, talking a little bit about a little bit more about China. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, we. Th- I think there's folks that could talk all week on China. <laughs> I was I was gonna say I was gonna say we may not have enough time here, but I do want you to you know touch base on some of the important things uh, in regards to uh, exports to China. Well. Uh, let me start off. I'm not going to talk near as long as some people because it's one of those where I like to try to summarize and say things in as few words as possible. But uh, <laughs> China, as most people know, uh, their swine industry has been hit hard by the African swine fever. Yes. And this has been going on for the last few years. Their uh, hog populations, and I don't know the final numbers, but I know they were down less than 50% of what their normal uh, population was. It was that bad. It devastated yeah. a lot of uh, hog farmers in China. But it wasn't just China. It was all over uh, Southeast Asia. And they needed, China needed additional protein uh, to keep their population fed. So, I mean, they were importing a lot of uh, poultry, a lot of uh, uh, pork. Uh, mm-hmm. Their beef imports definitely went up, mm-hmm. uh, importing all across the board. As far as uh, uh, what their current situation is, I mean, there is still African swine fever in that region. Uh, but they are getting to the point where they're actually starting to rebuild uh, their pork industry. Right. So even though we've got record uh, exports to China right now in pork, I think we'll see that number uh, go down over the coming year. Uh, and reason being is they build their own internal uh, pork supply back. And it's going to take a while, but it, it's gonna you're going to see them coming back. Right. You'll see the uh, what they're importing start to go down. So that's, that makes it even more important for us to look at other uh, markets across the globe and try to uh, increase our uh, percentage imports into those countries. Uh, so, as far as, go ahead. As far as the, the other meats, I think you're going to see as they increase in pork, pork was one of their uh, largest per capita consumptions on the uh, protein side. So 
I think we'll see uh, it may not affect the beef as much because right now we're still competing with Australia and right. Brazil mostly with the uh, end of the China market. So uh, Argentina also is another uh, large importer into China. Mm-hmm. But they they do like our grain-fed beef. Yeah, that, that absolutely. Is the, we, we have a very high-quality product to offer. Well, and that is what sells uh, most of our exports is the high quality, the taste, texture. Uh, people eat it, and they have a uh, pleasant, memorable experience. So it makes it easier for us to get our foot in the door and uh, keep it in the door, even though the price may not be as competitive as some other countries. Right, right. Well, I mean, uh, what does it look like? as we roll into 2021? 2021 is going to be a year of recovery uh, all across the globe, I believe. It's going to be one where countries are trying to gain back what they've lost, and I think they're projecting uh, good growth across the board, although it may take most of the year for some countries to actually – feel like that they're making that kind of progress, right. especially down in the, uh, you know, in Central America and the Caribbean and areas like that. You're going to mm-hmm. have to get tourism going back before they can really start to uh, get out of the hole that they're in. Uh, but 2021, in the U.S., we're looking at uh, uh, increased supplies across the board, I believe. Uh, so we'll have plenty of uh, meat to go around, which makes it still important that we can uh, increase the uh, exports also. Sure. The, uh, and, and we believe that as the economy grows across the globe again, you're going to see tourism pick up. You're going to see restaurants back in service, uh, hotels. Uh, so it's going to be a, it's going to be a growth year from the standpoint of uh, places reopening and getting started again, if you want to call yeah, it that. Especially with these, uh, the good news about the recent uh, vaccines that are coming out for for COVID, and eventually that'll that'll spread across the country as well as it becomes available to you know folks like you and me um, to to you know get a vaccine and whatnot. And that economy will kickstart again. I think you're. Uh, I think you're exactly right, Greg. I think it's going to be, if nothing else, right now, it's a moral boost. <laughs> Absolutely, it gives, it gives people something to look forward to. Because I haven't talked to anybody that says they're not ready for this thing to be over with. <laughs> you, you and me both, Sam, for sure, for sure. Anything else about 2021 that that you're you know, kicking around in your head and maybe maybe tie that into uh, my next question, which was going to be what are the biggest needs for cattlemen in the U.S. as we roll into 2021? Oh, the biggest needs is I'm going to say let's keep the, uh, uh, let's keep the export market growing mm-hmm. so that we've got places to go with that beef. Uh, let's... Uh, Let's get this uh, COVID-19 behind us. So, I mean, the uh, 
production capabilities that we have right. are, are sort of been reaching – this year they've been reaching a little bit of a pinch point when you get to the uh, 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 packers and processors. Sure, you Just, need healthy folks working there. Right, and it's been one of those – it's been a challenge for them in a lot of cases because you've got so many people in a very tight area. Right. So it is uh, – It is. Uh, one of the things I'm sure they're looking forward to that vaccine as much as anybody. You bet. You bet. But uh, one other thing, too, uh, that I think is going to help us in Arkansas, uh, there has been uh, some support for uh, or some money for grants for people that are expanding uh, processing facilities. And we've looked at that, and uh, I think that's going to be a big boon to the uh, – uh, state of Arkansas as far as being able to get meat processed quicker because the number of processors that we had, especially for beef and hogs, has been really limited. And there's quite a bit of expansion in that area using some of that CARES Act money. So you're talking about the, the smaller processing plants, which yes. allow allow folks uh, in, in a lot, you know, I've interviewed a lot of uh, uh, cattlemen, and especially uh, uh, young cattlemen who have gotten into what we call the freezer beef market and and selling, you know, locally um, uh, among friends and family and relatives and online type things. And, you know, as soon as, for most of them, as soon as, if they can get their animal processed, they have it sold literally within hours online. <laughs> um, to folks who are buying, you know, that custom custom meat, and and then obviously talk about state inspection uh, ramping up again to you know make things a little easier in regards to that. So so that's important too, uh, outside of the traditional cow calf operations. Yes, it is. It's uh, it's one of those that that can benefit the uh, the small farmer out here. They can actually finish uh, some beef or hogs and have them processed Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and be able to sell their product uh, directly through farmer's markets or, uh, like you said, online sales Mm -hmm. or just, you know, to the neighbor or family. So it is a – I think it will be a huge boom to uh, all across the state. So I'm looking forward to see what that's going to bring. Now, are you going to be doing some of that yourself? I have done a little bit in the past, but uh, it's one of those where uh, sometimes that's a good thing to look at, and then other times when your freezer is almost full already, you're looking at it and going, "Eh, maybe not right now. (laughs) Well, Sam, is there anything else you want to add? I know we're rolling into a holiday season, and people, you know, go after their traditional cuts of beef, whether it's beef or pork or anything like that, but any anything we haven't covered that you wanted to bring up? Oh, I'd just like to wish everybody a safe and happy Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas season coming up. I think it'll be uh, one that we're going to talk about for a while. <laughs> uh, no matter how we do it, I think we'll be talking about it for a while. So everybody just stay safe and uh, uh, be careful and uh, enjoy life. 
Sam, thank you so much. We've been talking with Sam Cecil. He is involved uh, as a cattleman himself with his own cow-calf operation, but he's also uh, involved with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the Arkansas Beef Council, and the Arkansas Cattlemen's Association. And you've given us a, a good primer heading into 2021 of, of what to expect with uh, with beef in particular and also pork. Thank you, Sam, for being a guest on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Greg, you take care, sir. Thank you. That does it for this early Thanksgiving edition of Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back on schedule next Thursday with more news and views on Arkansas agriculture.